Welcome to Who's Training Who, Episode 1. I'm Tom. I'm Allie. And we're here to talk all things about dogs. We're going to talk training, behavior, and talk to cool people and organizations that are doing some awesome things with dogs. We hope that by listening to this podcast, we can help give you a better understanding of dogs and ways for you to have a better relationship with your own dog. All right, so being the first episode, I guess we should introduce why we're even having a podcast and what we know about dogs. So how about Allie, how about you start and tell us how you got started with dogs and how you got to opening I Got This Sit. Yeah, so um, I started pet dog training, just teaching classes um, four years ago at Loyal Companions, um, which is a fear-free vet clinic. Uh, I got more interested in training and decided uh, to start researching training programs. Uh, finally, I decided on the Karen Pryor Academy, did the um, intensive workshop, I guess you could call it, which was about a, a six to eight month program, online coursework, as well as four two-day workshops where you actually bring your dog uh, one of the requirements is that you work with another species, so I used a horse since I have been working with horses since I was very, very young. Um, and basically what led me into dog training in general was that I had a problem dog and I needed to learn how to help her and then I just wanted to keep learning and learning and learning. How did that go transition to opening I Got This Sit? Why didn't you just stay like independent or I guess just on your own without a facility and all that stuff? I've always wanted to own a business my entire life. Um, it's pretty much in my blood. I just kind of wanted to be able to help dogs the way I wanted to help them, um, as well as being one of the only positive reinforcement board and train slash day training facilities in the area. I saw a big, big market for it, considering that there's a lot of people that send their dogs to other places that um, don't use positive reinforcement. How did you get on this journey with dogs, Tom? Most of my working life I've been in television production. Um, I've never done anything else. And then in 2018, um, had a family, wife, kid at the time. I now have two kids, but at that time too. And I was like, I just need to do something different. I'm burning out. I just need to try something different. Um, and so I looked into dogs. We were having issues with our one dog at the time. Um, just trying to find a place that we could take them that's quality for like dog for daycare for boarding, um, and they're just everything was twenty to thirty minutes away, and it still wasn't like a great, you know, like it still was just we we're struggling just for you know our dog would come out not happy or would go in for, you know a couple of weeks would be okay and then after a while would not be happy anymore and don't know exactly what the issues were but just we knew it wasn't working. So I'm like, maybe I can do this better. I'm an entrepreneur just like you, Allie, who just like, you know, I can do this myself, you know? And so um, I started researching. Um, I enrolled in Catch Canine Trainers Academy to learn dog training. Not that I really want to be a trainer, but just to understand what I could about dogs and why they do what they do. Um, I joined the IBPSA, which is the International Boarding and Pet Services Association. Um, and they have training in there too about best care for dogs, their nonprofit, which is was important to me that I know money isn't their main goal. Um, and so I know, I assume 99% of what they say is, is what's best for, you know, caring for dogs and whatnot. Um, I've started volunteering with the Humane Society of Aurora and learned what I could there. And that helped shaped um, how I wanted to work with dogs. When I started, it was a little different. Once I saw dogs in a shelter setting, I'm like, okay, this is the focus of my business is 
is to try to keep dogs out of shelters, you know, seeing why, hearing why dogs are being returned and for sometimes the dumb reasons that they are, you know, and so I created Waggy Tails and that was my intent for a year and a half was I'm going to open the facility, going to do it, did all, made a business plan, all that stuff, did all the work just like you had to do, I assume, for everything. And I couldn't get funding because the banks obviously want guaranteed money, which I didn't have. So I had to start doing dog walking, dog sitting, and so that's what I'm currently doing with Waggy Tails. And they'll get to do my mission, which is trying to keep dogs out of shelters and help people have a better relationship with their dogs. Um, let's talk about the positive reinforcement training, because me and, me and you both know, and if you've ever been on Facebook and looked at dog training, you can tell that that's a hot topic issue. Uh, I made a, me a meme a bunch of months ago and, and put it in one of my groups that it was a guy in the woods. And um, if you ever get lost in the woods, just mention dog training and someone will come and argue with you. And so that made it around. Like I didn't, exp I just put it in one small group and then I'm like, I saw it in my feed and all these like national things. Nobody knew it was me. I didn't mark it. And that's when I learned, okay, I have to mark my stuff now from now on. But but I think it's true though, like, like it resonated with everybody about it because you have positive reinforcement trainers, you have balanced trainers. Are most people balanced trainers or, or is there like still just like people who are just true aversive? Or there they... are still okay. people who are true aversive, now, not do, as many. What do they call themselves? Do they go into the balanced label or try to be in the balance or do they just call themselves trainers or there really is no name for them? I don't know because okay. I don't know that you'd want to label yourself as a versus strictly aversive yeah. um i'm trying to think of the one company that i know that is strictly aversive what they call themselves and i don't think they yeah. i don't think they label themselves yeah i'm not going to mention those i know <laughs> i know quite a few around here who do that and i'm not going to mention them yep, but nope. <laughs> um you didn't grow up learning positive reinforcement that's something that you found on your own so how did you find that on your own and what was that journey getting to becoming only positive reinforcement yeah so um very young growing up my grandparents trained professionally um, they worked with field trial labs so of course it was all off-leash work um, e-collars strictly um, i don't even know that i saw treats in training again you know that was 25 years ago um, which that was you know the traditional method of training then that's how people knew to train dogs yeah, that's how i trained my previous dogs too is that's how that's how you learn that's just what you did yeah um so i guess you know that was that was traditional that was normal that's what everybody knew they didn't know different ways um behavior science wasn't behavior science at that time um so i did learn a lot of those aspects growing up again you know not friendly not kind to our animals um being growing up with horses as well that's a little bit different of an industry. Um, it doesn't need to be. I have clicker trained horses and it's been quite a learning experience for me. Um, but when you have a thousand pound flight animal, you know, it's, you would think it would be normal and common knowledge to not want to put fear into them or hurt them. But it still isn't. So growing up is again, it's pretty common to, to, for people to, yeah, I mean, your common tools for riding is, is spurs is riding crops is digging your legs into their sides to get them to move. Um, 
it does take longer to click or train them to do things. But again, you know, a kinder way of doing things. Maybe um, a longer lasting to a point or like a longer I, last. I mean, I would say yes. You know, it'd be the same as training a dog a behavior. You know, as long as you're still reinforcing the behavior, it would still continue on. Um, so, you know, again, growing up in another unfriendly animal yeah. world. Um, so training, I guess, has always been kind of on, on the back burner. You know, I always took um, dogs to classes, which probably when I was in my early teen years, um, I took one of my dogs who was a Boston Terrier pug mix, who was really, really smart, really, really eager to learn. We took her to an obedience class. I took her with my mom and they actually had done treats there. So that was probably the first time I was really exposed to treat training. Um, and, you know, it, it was fun. We were teaching tricks. I enjoyed it. She enjoyed it. Everybody was happy getting out of the car, going into this, you know, brand new building that a lot of dogs would be nervous at. So, you know, right there it was like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. Why wouldn't I, you know, tell you to sit and, and pay you for it, ideally? Um, then, you know, I worked with my dogs growing up at home all the time, um, was always treat training. When I got my first dog, she was extremely, extremely fearful. My first dog on my own. Um, she was extremely fearful. You know, she was a perfect angel. I didn't need to teach her anything. Yeah. Um, she's just your, your Scared, laid yeah. back. I don't need to learn things. You know, I'm good on my own. She knows maybe six behaviors as compared to my, my other two. But, um, you know, I, I was never exposed to punishment training with her. Um, when I adopted my second dog, um, she again was very young, uh, no issues to start with. She began developing some behavior issues and like most people, I didn't know how to train behavior issues. Um, I was just pet dog training and I was like, yeah, I can teach your dog to sit, I can teach your dog to down, you know, and I'm gonna pay him for it um, with positive reinforcement. Behavior problems was a totally different thing for me. Um, so of course I probably turned to the internet at that point and was like, who Talk can everybody. help me? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I had remembered that when I was working at the daycare at Loyal Companions, a trainer had came come in and um, it was a balanced trainer and you know, he was talking to me about aggression issues. Now before and... we go farther, let's, I guess, try to explain what the difference, cause I know a lot of balanced, I, I, I think I know the definition of balanced trainer, but I know a lot of balanced trainer trainers try to say that they're positive reinforcement until whatever sets and shuts and then they switch over to using other means as I put quotation marks there. Um, so what do you know if there's a true definition of what a balanced trainer is? I mean as far as what I would consider a balanced trainer it would be someone who uses treats for training as well as uses punishment for training. Okay. Um, it's not always balance like is what they try to imply that you know I know a lot of them at least I've heard them when they try to argue about training and why they do what they do is like we use positive reinforcement most of the time mm -hmm. and it's but and I'm like what about that other times yeah and it might not be an even balance um you know looking at tipping a scale they may tip one way more than the other um but again but to be a totally positive reinforcement you can't use no we would never use fear force intimidation um, to, to get behavior and from no their dog. no one can get those letters at the end of their name when they're a trainer unless they 
are positive, completely positive reinforcement? Um, as far as like KPA letters? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Like, like what, uh, so like we do take uh, an oath to uphold positive reinforcement okay. standards at the end of our program. We have to okay. sign a, a ledger every year to say. Now, can trainers still get letters? I don't know what the letters are, but can trainers get letters even if they do use some type of aversive stuff too? Is there an organization that does allow that? So as far as I know from my research, they can still get letters and they are supposed to follow what's called Lima protocol. And we will probably talk about that in another podcast, yeah. but um, it is least intrusive, minimally aversive methods first. So they can get letters, but if they're withholding the standards, they should be employing yeah. the least intrusive, minimally yeah. aversive methods okay. first. So that, you know, there should be some standardization in a industry that really doesn't have any standardization. Right? Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, continue with getting to positive reinforcement. Yeah. Um, so uh, I had talked to a, a balance trainer and he told me all about how we could fix our problems and all that stuff. And I met with him once and, um, you know, instantly it was, this is the prong collar I recommend. And um, I was like, okay, sure. Um, went online, ordered one. Um, the very first session without really even working with my dog, um, there was an e-collar put on her and, you know, at the very, very lowest stimulation just to show me, you know, how, where it could be effective and when a dog knows that it's on. Um, yeah, so, so that was the one and only time that we, you know, went to that trainer and I was just like, okay, now I know how to use the tools. I already am, you know, pet dog training. I guess I get how to employ them. Um, I think I took her to the forest preserve one time on a prong collar and I probably issued one correction and I was like, that didn't feel right. And yeah. after that, it was like, no, I need to find a better way. Um, so she was actually a safe, humane court case dog. So I reached out to the head of behavior there and I said, you know, um, because they do come with lifetime behavior support. So I reached out and I said, do you have a trainer in my area? You know, I'd really like to work with somebody that, you know, can teach me a different way for my dog and, and hopefully, you know, actually fix her as best as possible. Um, so they did uh, send a trainer to me and um, he, you know, told me all about the counter conditioning methods that needed to happen and, and how we modify behavior in a positive way. Um, and ever since then, I started my journey with positive reinforcement. So you brought up something with the, when you were in the forest and you did the first correction with the prong collar. Did you ever have that feeling growing up and working with the collies and, you said collies, right? All labs. Labs, and or the horses or anything like that, doing using those methods for those animals as to, like why did it matter all of a sudden now that you had your, your own dog on your own? Well, so, I mean, with, with the prong collar, um, I feel like I find that more owners have a problem with that than they do pressing a button on an e-collar because you're physically, you know, feeling your Got dog's it. neck through the leash. Ah, that's um, a good way to explain it. Okay. So, you know, that felt really wrong. Um, I guess, you know, as a child, and I, I can't say for sure, yeah, yeah. but I didn't do any of the actual training. Like they were already e-collar trained and I don't even think that I ever pressed a button. Um, but we worked on the stuff they already knew. Okay. So, you know, I had watched my grandma do it, but 
I don't think she's going to hand a, a five-year-old a e-collar remote and be like, now press it, press it again. Because um, I don't, that's I remember it. just like kind of giving like the cues and the signals and stuff and yeah. not. You're after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They were already trained. I was just going through the motions basically. Okay. Um, as far as horses go, uh, I actually stopped being as involved in the horse industry as I was when I was younger, because as I started to get more serious, the punishment towards horses got more serious, no. um, which was, you know, as a, a 10 year old, someone kicking my pony in the gut scared the heck out of me. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to, I'm going to go trail ride and, you know, jump on my own. I don't need to get to Olympic level. I'm good. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so that's kind of where I ended up yeah. leaving my professional horse career that was starting to happen. And so then what made you go to Karen Pryor com compared to any of the other programs out there? You know, I went to catch, I think there's ABC, which is yep. Animal Behavior yep. College. And then Karen Pryor, I think those are some of the, well, yeah, I mean, there's, catch there's might not a lot be like out a big there. Gene um, yeah. Donaldson's program, uh, Pat Miller's program. The trainer that had worked with my dog Chunk he was a KPA graduate, and when I started doing research and I just couldn't decide and couldn't decide, um, he had guided me towards Karen Pryor, and I, you know, looked into it, and I said, you know, yeah, there's there's a lot of, lot of good, you know, people out there that are KPA teachers and graduates, so um, it seemed like the obvious choice. This brings us to the next topic, which is event marker training, is what you mm -hmm. call, I don't, know if, I don't know if it's just you or everybody calls it clicker training. Yes. Because you can, most people know it as clicker training, but mm -hmm. are, is there trying to change it to event marker training or that's what's always been called? So clicker training is a form of event marker training. Um, most people know it as clicker training. If I say, are you familiar with event marker training? Most people look at me and then I say, are you familiar with clicker training? And they will say, oh yeah, I've heard of it, but I, I've never done it. Um, I just like to call it event marker training personally because I feel like when I call it clicker training, people are like, well, I don't want to use the clicker. Do I have to use the clicker? Am I going to have to carry an extra piece of equipment while I'm training my dog? No, you do not have to use a clicker. The clicker is a good way to train dogs. But again, when I'm working with a, you know, 100 pound reactive dog that could easily, you know, take advantage if I have one hand on a clicker and one hand on a leash, you know, I'm using an event marker, which would be a yes for me. Got it. Um, that's easier. And that's than... how I've been trained, or at least through the catch yeah, yeah. there, you know, they like you could use a clicker, but it's easier just to use the word yes yeah. than that way. But but you can use any word really. It's just yeah, it's just being use, consistent. Uh, yeah, I use good for one of my personal dogs because he gets a little too over aroused with the yes because I get excited about the yes, whereas the good it's more like good, yeah, good. So he he works for the good really yeah. well. Um, so. You know, it, it can be anything. You can say nice, point, you can say yay, you can, as long as it doesn't sound like everyday conversation and it's, it's, it's a specific way to say it every time, it doesn't matter what your event marker is. I think that brings is. a great point though, just that, you know, just because it works for one dog doesn't mean it's going to work for another dog. You have to figure out what works for your dog. Mm -hmm. so anyways, how does event marker training work if, if you're not using a clicker? Yeah. So it's just the yes. So your then... event marker, whether it be your yes, your good, your nice, your clicker, um, deaf dogs, you can give a thumbs up to, uh, one of the deaf dogs I worked with, I would tap my chin. Um, those are just ways to tell them 
that the moment they did the thing we're looking for, whether it be the butt hits the ground for a sit, um, whether it be, you know, they have all four paws on the floor as they approach you, whether it be they give you eye contact. As soon as they do the behavior, we mark it with our event marker. And then it also lets them know a treat is coming. So when we initially warm up our event marker, it's just, and I'll just use the click as an example. If we were doing the click, it would be click, treat, click, treat, click, treat, because the clicker has nothing, no meaning to them when they first start. We build meaning by reinforcing it with whatever they are reinforced by. I want to go back to the counter conditioning and a topic that was recently put into my head based on a post that you had on your, I don't know if it was your personal or I got the sit page or something like that, but it had to do with muzzles. And I'm still learning more about them and trying to form my opinion on it, but you just maybe start the research of understanding them better because growing up and even until a little bit ago, I was like, muzzles are for dogs that are dangerous, that hurt people or whatever, you know, whatever it is, or you always see them on police dogs to when they're walking in public. And, you know, I've always wondered why, but I never researched. I just kind of assumed like everybody does. You just have your knowledge that you think you know, but you really don't. Um, so talk about muzzles and why you think that they're actually okay. And, you know, cause we don't see a lot of, I don't think I've seen a lot of positive trainers promote muzzles as much as like I've seen balance trainers or all the other trainers who are like, yeah, put muzzles, you know, whatever. Um, so tell me why you think muzzles are okay and how they help you with training and help your dogs and whatnot. So for me, the main thing that I look at with muzzle training is I don't do it when it becomes a necessity for a dog. I would rather do it because it's not a necessity. Um, I will train dogs that it is a necessity for to be comfortable in their muzzle. But for me, think about it this way. If I'm going to take my dog to the vet, they're already stressed out about the vet. And then maybe they split a nail and the vet is looking at that nail and they're triggered because they're at the vet. They may be triggered because they were on a car ride. They may be triggered from whatever happened earlier in their day. They're probably triggered from the pain in their nail. Then they get in that room that's, you know, usually small exam room. Strange people that hopefully they've met before, but they may not have a huge rapport with come in. They're trying to touch this painful nail. Um, the dog's already just at their threshold at this point, potentially over threshold. And they may start giving warning signs that... Some vets are trained to notice, most should be, um, but some don't care because they need to get it done or, you know, Whatever they reason. just yeah. are not paying enough attention. Yeah. So then say that dog, because it's already over threshold, gives a little warning bite or even an air snap. The muzzle gets put on regardless. Even yeah. if that dog is, is distressed, they're probably going to put a muzzle on that dog. So now we have another trigger, the muzzle because that dog has never had a muzzle on before. Maybe it only gets a muzzle at the vet, and maybe that's another reason it doesn't like yeah. going to the vet. And then all the people are gonna to come to hold down mm -hmm. the dog to put the muzzle mm -hmm. on or whatever they have to do. And, yep, and so it's... if that dog is already acclimated and comfortable in wearing a muzzle, it's one less trigger for that dog that's already trigger stacked. Got it. Should people muzzle train their dogs in general, or what are, what are some of the reasons why people should start muzzle training a dog? Yeah, so I mean, for me, it's another skill for all of my dogs. My dog, my, my sweet one that I mentioned earlier, my fearful one, 
I've never had to put a muzzle on her, but I have put a muzzle on her. Um, she is completely comfortable in wearing a muzzle. She knows the muzzle means spray cheese, just like all the other dogs that I muzzle train. Uh, they all love it. They all see the muzzle. They run their own face into the muzzle. I strap it on. Spray cheese keeps happening. Good things happen. Uh, generally, I take them to do enjoyable activities in their muzzle. And that's not because they need to be muzzled. You know, if I take them out on a walk in their muzzle, it's because they enjoy walks. And that's just another way to build positive associations to that muzzle. Um, obviously, a dog that needs to be trained for the muzzle for other reasons, such as aggression or um, even potentially just over arousal mouthing or something like that, yes, they should absolutely be trained to the muzzle. Um, if it's a matter of safety and it's, you know, another layer of safety to use as opposed to just like a leash and harness and barriers and things like that, we're keeping our dogs safe with muzzles, okay. you know, if they're a dog that, that needs to be kept safe. I do have to say, though, while Allie is talking, she is holding the cutest Frenchie, French dog, right? Frenchie? Uh, French bulldog. Yeah, French bulldog, 12 weeks old, pure white, smallest thing I've seen in a long time. Anyway, yeah, it's just the muzzle, it's, it's I think it's just like positive reinforcement training. It's a, it's getting people to realize that it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, sometimes it is, but it's for, it's for the protection of people, it's for protection of the dog, you know, because as I like to say, and I know it's very generalizing it, but you know, the worst thing that can happen to you is a dog will bite you. I mean, obviously there's worse things that happen, but in the generally worst thing that it bites you, you recover, you know, may have a scar, but you recover. But the worst thing that happens to a dog if he bites a person is they're, they're put to sleep, mm -hmm. you know? So sometimes it's just, it's there for the protection of both sides and not just um, there. All right, so we're coming to our last segment of, which we're gonna end every episode by, which is Ask a Trainer. And Allie's gonna answer questions from you guys about behavior, about training, and she's going to try to give her best advice on how to deal with whatever you, whatever you throw at her. Um, so today's question or issue is pulling while walking on a leash, which I know is a big issue in all of training. And usually the first thing people, I assume is the first thing people ask you is above anything else is how to get my dog to stop pulling on the leash when we're on a walk, or how do you get it, get them to not, when they see that squirrel to go, you know, be like the dog and up and, you know, up squirrel and run, you know, right at it. Um, so I guess start with why do dogs do that? Like, why do dogs pull? Like, I mean, it's a common thing. So why do dogs do it? And then how would you go about trying to stop it? So um, there are different reasons why dogs pull. Um, obviously if they see a stimuli like a dog or a wildlife of some sort running around, that's a reason to pull towards it, um, which is something we'll really dive into. Um, today I think I'd just like to talk about the basics of loose leash walking as opposed to the counter conditioning process that yeah. has to be done to yeah. not get their dogs that's to pull after stimuli. Oh yeah, uh, oh yeah. Of how that, yeah. Um, so first off, I recommend um, getting a harness called the Freedom No Pull Harness. And it is a harness that has a back clip and a front clip. I personally only attach the leash to the front clip. Um, and what's the reasoning behind that? So generally with the front clip, it'll redirect your dog to face you as opposed to just continuing to pull through, like if we attached it to the back clip only. Um, they do create a special training leash for it that attaches to both the front and the back. But for me personally, the front clip has always just worked really well. Okay. 
Um, the other premise is start your loose leash walking inside. If you take it outside, again, you're going to run into those stimuli and that's a whole, whole yeah. other topic and your, your criteria changes when you get yeah. outside. Um, so if you have a dog that does nice loose leash walking in the house and you're getting lots of eye contact, then I recommend, you know, even taking it as slow as taking it in your backyard. Work on it outside where the distractions are familiar, but there are still some distractions. Then you might just go on the front sidewalk and, and down the, to the block and back. Um, so it's a lengthy process. It of is, what it you're is doing. yeah. Um, like, like a lot of training processes. Yeah. Especially but, if you're doing positive reinforcement yeah, training. Yeah, so, um, so one, how So how would you start? So, you know, you talked about eye contact, mm -hmm. all that stuff. So what do you... Let's, you know, we have a family whose dog is always a puller. Mm -hmm. So when you get you start in the house, what's the first thing that you're, that you're trying to mark that's a good thing? Yeah, so marking voluntary or involuntary eye contact. So either by saying their name, getting the eye contact, or letting them just give you eye contact naturally. And should this be done while, you, while the harness and leash is on them, or can you do it even if you're just like sitting on the couch and they look at Either you? Either one. I mean, okay. the more your dog voluntarily gives you eye contact and understands that they're going to be reinforced for it, the more focus they're going to have when distractions are okay. added. Um, so again, you know, you can walk around the house and if your dog chooses to kind of stay by your side or stay in your proximity, reinforce that. Um, you know, reinforce what you want to keep seeing. Yeah. That's, that's the premise of, okay. of positive reinforcement. Okay. Reinforce what you want to see. If you want to see your dog give you eye contact and not care about the stimuli all over the world, if they're reinforced for it heavily in the house and then they start re getting reinforced by adding small distractions, they're going to offer it more often. Um, your dog can't be way ahead of you pulling on a leash and giving you eye contact at the same time. Um, the next step, you know, when we are finally outside and working on things, again, that harness is, is a great tool, but we want to train our dogs, you know, that and I think they... we need to make that. I think a lot of people assume the freedom harness mm -hmm. is the training method and it's not, it's just a tool in helping get to that point, but it's not going to solve your problem just because you bought the harness. Correct. Correct. And you know, why I recommend a harness as opposed to walking on the regular flat collar is because your dog's just going to keep choking themselves and they can injure their trachea. That can cause other behavior problems when they're pulling constantly. You know, you don't want a dog that's heaving and hawing and vomiting stuff up because yeah, they've yeah. been pulling so hard. Yeah. Um, so the Freedom Harness does protect their esophagus and, and all the parts inside there. Um, so that's why I generally recommend it. Plus, it is you know, a tool that will help you not have your dog just controlled by the yeah. head. It controls their whole body. Yeah. So before we get to outside, mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of people have a dog like mine who, when you reboard the look, how do you get them to not always like, I guess, and maybe I'll get to that when we get to the outside part, but a dog that's just always going to look at you and not go anywhere because they're like, well, just give me a treat. Just give me a treat. Um, you know, we know a common dog who I take for a walk as one of my clients who, you know, she's pretty good about walking, but there's times where she's like, I'm not going to move until you, until, you know, and like it could be the middle of the walk and she's like, I'm not going to move until you give me a treat. She's looking at me mm -hmm. and she, she does that like head turn of like being dramatic, like I need a treat right now, uh -huh. you know, type thing. So is there a risk of doing it too much where they're just always so focused on you that they don't even walk anymore because they just want that treat all the time or... 
So then we'd probably be adding in more things like building duration for the behavior. So yeah, you can stare at me all you want, but we're going to keep walking. Got it. Um, we would be adding in, okay, now it's not about necessarily the eye contact only. Now you have to take a few steps forward. Got it. So then it becomes more about a position, you know, next to you than anything. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a formal heel. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about this in another podcast, you know, yeah. loose leash walking versus a formal heel. Um, you know, both, all three of my dogs have both. Well, my youngest is working on it, but they all have it. But I employ loose leash walking because I want them to sniff. As long as my dogs aren't pulling, I don't care what they're doing on the end of the leash. Well, uh, yeah, to I an know. extent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as long as they're not pulling, barking, lunging, eating yeah. things off the ground, yeah, they yeah. can do whatever they want. Um, so that brings me to how I teach loose leash walking as opposed to healing. Yeah. So with loose leash walking, um, I make it about the dog feeling the pressure on their harness or their flat collar or whatever equipment we're using. So if they're pulling relentlessly, I stop and I wait for them to make a decision. And again, this is combined with marking eye contact and reinforcing eye contact and you know just reinforcing the position of being in the area. But the reinforcing part for dogs is going forward. So that is essentially why they pull towards nothing because yeah. they're just like, I want to go. Yeah. It doesn't matter where we're going, but we're going somewhere. Because, I mean, as hard as it's believed, dogs aren't used to being, <laughs> dogs don't like, they don't know that they're supposed to be harnessed. Yeah. You know, yeah. they just want to go because they're, they're very impulse driven. You yes. know, they're just yeah. like three-year-olds or two-year-olds who just, they do what they want. Yeah, you know, pretty and, much. Um, so, you know, forward is reinforcing. Um, so... You know, I stop, I do a lot of stop and go. And there are trainers that'll tell you, you know, go in a circle. Um, but I find with a dog that will, you know, we turn around, we just start pulling the other way. And yeah, then we yeah. turn around and, you know, I'm getting dizzy. So I just employ the stop and start. So if the pressure is released, whether they turn around and give me eye contact, maybe they turn around and come all the way back to me, maybe they sit. But either which way, I'm not feeling the tension on the leash anymore. And then we go forward. So I don't treat them for that necessarily. I just make it about, okay, the But the reward the pressure, is going forward. Yeah, That's the pressure's off, we go forward, the pressure starts again, we stop and we wait for you to figure out how to relieve that pressure. So I know there's no typical in dog worlds in the dog training, but is there a point where like, hey, I really need to worry that my dog's just not getting the pressure and then, you know, is it something that then we would have to change, like, the person would have to change how they're doing it to, if their dog's just not getting the whole pressure walk, pressure walk, or, you know, it's going to take a while to get that, to figure that out, right? It's not going to happen after like five times that the dog figures it out. No, and I mean, I have had dogs that I go over and it does take a certain level of skill because again, if you're not stopping and starting at the right time, the dog isn't going to understand what's happening. Yeah. Um, so there are times where I'll be walking the dog for the client and kind of showing them what I'm doing and the dog will be, you know, right next to me giving me eye contact, all those things. Yeah. And then I hand the leash That's over. That's because you're talking to dog... it the way that, 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 <laughs> yeah, that it yeah. understands. Um, you know, and then I hand the leash over to the client and it's a completely different story. So, you know, we may change up strategies. We might start to employ more, um, you know, teaching them to station on a, a little pod next to you okay. or, um, you know, hand targeting as we walk, those kinds of things. You know, it's, it's never going to be a one size fits all program. That's just my general starting point and yeah. then see how it goes. Yeah. I'm sure we could talk about it in a whole nother 40 <laughs> yeah. minutes of a podcast. And, and then, you know, like I said, we'll mention the 
the, the counter conditioning, the stimuli later, because again, a lot of times when dogs are pulling, it's because they've seen something and they want to go chase it. Yeah. And then they're conditioned that that's what they need to do yeah. every time they yeah. do it. Um, like, it, yeah, I mean, I could talk about that too for oh, a long yeah. time. Oh yeah. Um, but anyway, so that's the end of our podcast. Our first one ever. So that's exciting. It finally happened. Yeah. Um, so thank you everybody for, for listening. Uh, make sure if you can subscribe uh, to this podcast, we're going to try to do it every month and we're going to talk about all types of topics. So give us ideas if you, if you have ideas of what we should talk about or you ever wanted to know, um, we can dive into it and thanks everybody. Thank you.